West Virginia University is a renowned Research One institution with over 200 graduate and professional programs to choose from. Find more information about how you can explore your passion at graduateadmissions.wvu.edu. Welcome to Grad Life 601 Research and Beyond, a podcast supported by West Virginia University's Provost Office of Graduate Education and Life. I'm your host, Dr. Nancy Coronia, a teaching associate professor with the Department of English at West Virginia University. Today, I'll be speaking with Janelle Chua, who is a PhD candidate in biochemistry and molecular biology with WVU School of Medicine and the winner of WVU's 3MT for her presentation, Switch on the Garbage Disposal to Treat Alzheimer's Disease. Most recently, she placed second in the regional three-minute thesis competition. Her research interests concern the molecular mechanism of proteasomal impairment by neurodegenerative disease-associated proteins. Janelle was born and raised in Malaysia and came to the U.S. in 2015 for college. I'm grateful she stopped by today to talk with us about her research, her role as a graduate student, and making the transition to college as an international student. Welcome, Janelle. Thank you, Nancy. I'm excited to chat with you today. Thank you. So let's get started right away. Your research focuses on the progression of degenerative diseases like Alzheimer's. Could you talk about what drew you to this research and what's most exciting about the research you're currently conducting? It's it's the opportunity to study such a fundamental aspect because the proteasome is involved with so many major life processes. And studying the proteasome allows me to have a great impact with my research. My research has relevance in diseases as prevalent as Alzheimer's, which is affecting 50 million people globally. So you can imagine the impact of my research. Um, I also think that studying the proteasome can be really helpful for future generations. So today, maybe it's most relevant in Alzheimer's. Perhaps there are lesser known diseases that we just simply haven't got to yet. There are just not enough researchers in the world. And because the proteasome is so fundamental to life, I can imagine that knowing about the proteasome can support future research about lesser known diseases one day. Can you talk a little bit, bit a, a little bit about what a proteasome is? I, I, as a person who's in English, I don't know what that is and why it's so important to what you're talking about. You're talking about it as foundational. So I call the proteasome as the garbage disposal of our cell, and that's probably an oversimplification, but that's genuinely all I think the society needs to know in terms of um, the fundamental idea. So our body goes through proteins. A lot of times you hear people say, eat a lot of protein, protein's good for you. But I don't think a lot of people understand why protein's good for you. And the matter of fact is a good portion of our body is made of protein. You've got fat and you've got protein, you've got carbohydrates. And a lot of our life processes or biological processes involve proteins. So when you take all these proteins from your diet or supplements, it's allowing your body to generate more proteins. Unfortunately, proteins don't last forever. You can think of your meat that you buy from the grocery store. They don't last forever. Even if you freeze it, right? Maybe a few months, they'll last. And that's just the same for our bodies. 
So when those proteins start to fail or the technical term is denature, we've got to get rid of those proteins. And that's what the proteasome is good for. It's that garbage disposal that helps you get rid of the old proteins. Because if your old proteins hang out for too long, you can imagine waste is not good. It's going to overwhelm the cell. And they can cause a whole bunch of issues. So we want to get rid of the old proteins. And that's that's what the, the garbage disposal, that's what the proteasome does. So in Alzheimer's, what happens is, is the garbage disposal is not working. Properly. Right. It's not working as right. And we can actually take tissues, brain samples and slice them up and see those waste accumulating. And they actually look like clumps um, of proteins accumulating. So that's, an, that's a big clue to us that there's something wrong with this removal of waste. And we want to target that. It seems like a really logical and simple idea that people should have realized years ago, but targeting that has not been as easy because the proteasome is quite a complicated machine. So we're trying to study about it, understand how it works, how we can make it work better or turn it back on, maybe use that as a therapy strategy for Alzheimer's. Wow, that's so interesting. My mom um, had Alzheimer's disease. So this I'm is sorry. Oh, it, <laughs> and it was hard, right? Because you don't understand what's happening to a person. But this to me sounds like very promising therapy for people in the future who are having some kind of degenerative men- memory loss in any way, not just Alzheimer's, but even through vascular um, strokes and things like that. Absolutely. I We've learned that the studying the proteasome is not just helpful with Alzheimer's, but Parkinson's and Huntington's. So these are all neurodegenerative diseases that have some underlying biology in common, and we just don't know enough about it. And that's why research is so important. So what drew you to this research in particular? I mean, it sounds like you want to make a difference, but what drew you to this to make the difference in medicine? Right. I. It's quite ironic because when I went to graduate school, I was smack sure I was going to study about cancer because my mom suffered from breast cancer and I was so passionate about it. And it comes down to the methods involved. Uh, cancer cell biology is it's quite a field in itself. And once you start rotating the labs, you realize that the way they answer questions or the methods and the type of experiments that they use are very peculiar. Whereas I'm in the biochemistry and molecular biology. So I use a subset of techniques that usually biochemists uh, do. And that's why, you know, the program that you pick is is the program that you're trained in for a reason. So you you kind of got to think what suits or what matches your way of thinking, your scientific uh, train of thought. And when I rotated in the lab, David Smith's lab was really just a wild card. Someone said, hey, check this lab out. They do some research that has implications in cancer, but also in neurodegenerative diseases. So I thought, let's give it a shot. And I think it's worked out well. I think a big part of graduate school is keeping an open mind and letting the world of science overwhelm you, let it surprise you, and you never know what you could be exposed to. So when you went into Dr. Smith's lab, that was just simply one rotation, and now you've never left. Is that right? Absolutely. Yes. So I actually, it was my second rotation. So we have to do three rotations in my program. And the third rotation, by that point, I was already, I fell in love <laughs> with the proteasome. I call, I would say that's my first scientific love, I guess. And um, so my third rotation, I just use it as an opportunity to learn new laboratory skills, but I really knew that I was going to go back to Dr. Smith's lab. 
Wow, that's fascinating. So what would you tell potential graduate students to look for in a mentor? Because I'm guessing Dr. Smith has become your mentor now, right? Yes. Yes. Can you talk about the mentorship that you're receiving and then also give tips to graduate students about what to look for. Absolutely. I would say the first thing to think about is what is your learning style? Just because someone's a great mentor doesn't mean that he or she or they are going to be a great mentor for you. And I had come to the realization that I work really well in my own space. I want to try things. I want to try things for the first time by myself and let it fail if it's supposed to fail. And then from there, I'll come and reach out if I need help. Whereas some people might want a more guided approach, which is totally fair and it works great for some people. So think about what you want and how you learn best. Dr. Smith is really good and supportive about scientific independence. If a graduate student has an idea, he'll just you know say, go ahead and, and try it out. Maybe he already knows the answer that it's not going to work out, but it's always best when you try it out for yourself and you learn that way. And that's how I learned. So that's how I came to realize that he would work really well as my mentor. Wow, that's exciting. What other tips do you have for um, for graduate students beyond how to find a mentor? Can you just talk about graduate school in general? Yes, I can't emphasize enough the importance of protecting your mental health. Graduate school, it can take a major toll on your mental health. And I made the mistake of not seeking out help as soon as possible. I would encourage any incoming graduate students, whether you've had experiences with mental health struggles or not, start to seek out resources for counseling, therapy, or just a good support group. And that could be your your mentor or just your dissertation committee or just a professor that you're really close with because this is going to be a very difficult walk. It's, it's rewarding, but there are also going to be those lows and you need that help. A common struggle amongst graduate students is the imposter syndrome, which if our listeners are not familiar with, essentially... It's this mentality where you constantly doubt your ability and you feel like a fraud. You do not believe that you're as competent as people see you. And it hurts a lot more than it sounds. It's a very real struggle and it can creep up on you before you even realize it. Um, I struggle with that. I still struggle with that today. And it's really helpful to have a support group that gives you that reassurance that helps keep you in check that helps you realize, hey, this is not that voice in my head. This is not really who I am. I have put in the hard work and this is the result that I deserve. And that's going to keep you moving in graduate school. That's so important. I've had a few people over the course of the episodes talk about imposter syndrome and how important it is not only to have a support network, but to change the voices in your head that are sort of transmitting this information that you're lacking in some way because you're absolutely. I've been I've been very fortunate to meet um, to use the Be Well resource at the Health Sciences Campus. That's been a great resource for me to go through the pandemic because the pandemic has definitely affected graduate students. Yes. And uh, I cannot thank Lainey, who works in the Be Well office, enough for getting me through that phase. Wow, that's great to hear. And it's great to hear that our resources here at WVU are working for you. I really appreciate that. Now, you have 
you have something additional, right? You moved from Malaysia to the United States in 2015. So when you were in Malaysia, why did you think, I want to go to the United States? Were you looking at programs throughout the globe and you decided you made some choices in the United States? And then, well, I'll ask a follow-up question. Just talk about the, why don't you just talk about that transition from leaving, you know, in being in Malaysia, making the choice and then transitioning out? So my family, my parents really encouraged my sisters and I to go to the United States because we knew this is where we can get a lot of scholarships. It's not easy to pay for college, as many already know. And coming from Malaysia, where the currency exchange is not in our favor, we knew that we had to find a place that offered scholarships to international students. And the U.S. was great for that. I am so grateful to find a college that was able to give me enough scholarships to afford college and also allowed me to pick up on-campus jobs while I was here to pay for, you know, everyday expenses. So that really helped in that aspect. But there was still a slight transition where I had to realize the education system here has a slightly different style to Malaysia. Um I learned extra credits a thing. And I loved it. Extra credits, the best thing ever invented. I learned that not everything is just about the final exams. You have quizzes along the way. You have exams along the way. Sometimes your final exams were not cumulative. And so you start learning what's the best way to study. You want to study smart. Don't just cram everything in. Study the, the important points. Learn to filter out what's trivial and and what's actually important. I don't know if a lot of people know this, but in the British system, which is what I had in Malaysia, we didn't really have quizzes. Everything was just about the final exams. So you have the whole semester's worth of materials to memorize and cram, and you just take this one big exam, which can be so burdensome for students who are just not great test takers. Because what's worse than taking a test is taking a test on a semester's worth of material instead of three to four weeks. Wow. So what made you decide on WVU School of Medicine? I'm sure you had other offers. So why WVU and why the School of Medicine? During my time in college, I interned at WVU. I actually interned with Dr. Paul Lockman, uh, who is in the Department of Pharmacy or Pharmacology. And that was my first research experience. I was extremely excited. We were studying things related to breast cancer. I can't even tell you how excited I was. There were days when I had to spend the night and I packed my blanket. I took a toothbrush. I was ready to spend the night in lab. I volunteered to my mentors that I want to spend the night in lab. I think that's how I realized I actually really like to research. So that experience was so fulfilling and exciting. And I thought, you know, this environment at WV is really going to work out for me. I love how close the labs are within, but also amongst the different labs. I like how there's collaborations between labs in different departments. I I just love the environment at WVU, and I thought it would be a seamless transition from Waynesburg, which is a small college, to WVU. So, what did you you earn? Did you earn a BS at Waynesboro in biology or chemistry? I earned a BS in biology at Waynesburg University. And then from there, you decided, okay, I'm ready for the School of Medicine. That's great. yes. I thought I wanted to go into medical school, but research just, I just got addicted to research, I guess, (laughs) during my internship. So I made the natural decision to go to graduate school. 
That's awesome. Well, mm-hmm. congratulations. And so what tips do you have for international students as they apply to graduate school, as they think about maybe leaving their home country and going to another country? What are some of the tips that you would give for those students? It's, um, I guess you have to first be aware of the reality that having an international status does put you at a disadvantage for applying to certain scholarships and fellowships. So you want to make sure that the university that you're picking has a good international office that can support you, that can advocate for you. You want to make sure that you pick a university that is that has worked with international students before and know what to do if there are any visa issues. I was very grateful when... Um, there was an instance where our our visa, our F1 visa during the pandemic, because we were all starting to take online classes, they said that that was not enough to stay in the country and they were going to send us back. And I had people in my department that were ready to say, hey, research is not going to be an online course. We're going to make it an in-person class during the pandemic and you're going to be able to stay. We're going to change the way it's categorized in the database and you're going to stay in the country. And I was so much comforted by that. I was really grateful that I had people in my department who were familiar with working with immigration law and who has worked with international students. That's great. Okay, let's take a break for a moment to hear from WVU's Provost Office of Graduate Education and Life. The Hazel Ruby McQuain Graduate Scholarship provides recipients with financial support for graduate study. More information about eligibility, benefits, and the application process can be found at graduateeducation.wvu.edu. Applications are due March 28th. Welcome back to Grad Life 601 Research and Beyond. I'm your host, Dr. Nancy Caronia, and I'm speaking with Janelle Chua about her research in WVU School of Medicine. So Janelle, I think I know the answer, but what's the best part of graduate school for you? (laughs) This is so hard because I can't pick one and I'm a little bit of a romantic. So I'm going to zoom out for a second and just think it's the fact that I can perform research that contributes to our society's advancement. I'm studying something that no one in the world knows about. And until I share it with the world, it's like my little secret to keep. (laughs) about how life works. And I absolutely love that. Uh, Sometimes I can be working in the lab and I think, why am I struggling so much? This is not important. It's not going to change anyone's life directly. But when you step back for a moment and reprocess what you're doing, realize that it's an amazing opportunity that we're being trained to ask questions and find answers to questions that has never been answered before. Wow. (laughs) So the opposite of that, what's the thing that you wish you knew early on in graduate school that you had to learn through trial and error? Failing is really hard. (laughs) But it's also part of life, right? It is very much part of life. I can't tell you how many times people have finished graduate school and they tell me graduate school will be the hardest thing you've ever done, but it is absolutely rewarding. You want to fail fast. So fail, get all your failures out of the way, essentially, right? In the beginning, 
try and, and try everything, explore everything, develop those skills. Don't be afraid to try something new. Don't stay within your comfort zone. And I think this goes back to being that open, having that open mind, which I mentioned earlier. In the beginning, I really wanted to only use skills that I knew. And I had to come to the realization that in order to answer the questions that I ask, I need to learn new skills. I need to expand my repertoire. Um, and yes, that comes with a set of failures, but it means that I'm challenging myself. If you're not experiencing a set of failures in graduate school, I have to say there's something weird about it. You have you have to take advantage of this time where you have a, a, a buffer of, of like a free space to just make those failures. Because once you get out there, once you're your own scientist and you're using your own name, it's going to hurt more when you fail during that time. Yeah, what I always tell undergraduates is that, you know, we're not perfect, right? We're, we're not human perfects. We're human beings. And that oh, means yeah. that we're going to make mistakes. And that really what matters is how do we recover from those failures and those mistakes? Not that we make them, but that how do we adjust and we recover from them? And I think when we get to grad school, if we haven't really embraced failure on some level, it can be even harder, like you're saying. Absolutely. That is so true. It's harsh reality, but it's true. Yeah. And especially when you're a scientist conducting original research, sometimes you have to start over again with an experiment. You know, you have to say, oh, I've got to try this with different variables. And I can't imagine when you're working on degenerative diseases as you are, that there aren't a lot of, oh, we got to go back to the beginning, or we've got to go back three steps and try something else here. Right. I mean, you have to think the fact that this is something that we've been trying to answer for years. You can't just go in the lab one day and get your answer within an hour. There's a reason why finding the answers to these questions have been a challenge for so many scientists around the world. Absolutely. So now, while you're doing all this work, what do you plan on doing once you finish your PhD? Um, you said at first you thought maybe going to medical school, and but research has just grabbed your heart. So what are your career goals? And then where do you see yourself five years from now after or five years after you're done, after you've earned the PhD? It's It's been a question I've been trying to answer myself. I'm currently in my fourth year uh, in the program, and I probably should start having an answer at this point. I've been exploring so many things. There's so many things you can do with a PhD. You can go into writing, you can go into policy, you can go into business and finance. And I'm still exploring and figuring out what I don't like. That's my first step. Just figure out what you don't like, then you can filter out the options. <laughs> I think in terms of geographically speaking, I'm really open to staying anywhere in the country. I would really like to stay in the United States where scientific advancements are constantly being made. Right. I think I like the way the system works here better than in Europe or even back in Asia. I had considered going back home, but the research opportunities there are not great. So I probably will try to stay in the country. I have to just take my time and figure out my options. But the saving grace is that there are plenty of options out there. So you're bound to find something that you like. Can you talk a little bit about the three-minute thesis competition and what inspired you to actually send in a three-minute thesis? I saw it. It's, it's wonderful. <laughs> your your three-minute thesis is great. But can you talk a little bit about the three-minute thesis competition and what inspired you? Yes. So the three-minute thesis 
can I just say, I didn't see any of this coming. I did not even think I was going to win first place. I was really just shooting for making it as a finalist at WVU. And here I am having one second place at the regionals. It was during the pandemic and I am such an introvert. I was terrified of public speaking. So I thought to myself, if I'm going to see any success, it's when the competition is being held virtually because I can do public speaking if it's virtual where I'm not actually in a room. So I told my advisor, hey, I'm going to give it a shot. Probably won't be anything. So don't get too excited. That's the thing about Dr. Smith. He has all the optimism to share in the world. So I submitted it and obviously it came true. And nobody told me that if you won first place at WVU, you have to go to regionals. So I had that second wave of fear coming when I was getting ready to go to regionals. And that's in person. So I had nowhere to hide. Uh, but Surprisingly, I enjoyed the whole process. I worked with Dr. Betty May, who is such a wonderful coach. She invested so much in me, and I truly could not have done it without her. She gave me that reassurance that I actually could have the skills. Hey there, imposter syndrome. <laughs> she gave me that, you know, that confidence that I needed to attempt my best at regionals. And it's been a great journey. I so essentially I did not see any of this coming. I just threw my hat in the ring. And here I am, having gone through regionals. Do you feel like um, you gained a level of sort of more confidence about public speaking since you were thrown into the regionals without thinking about it, that it happened? <laughs> very, very much so. I think now I realize, hey, I can develop this set of skills to communicate my science or, or any science, as long as I understand it enough, I can communicate it to a non-expert audience. And I actually want to communicate with the non-expert audience. Being able to talk with you, Nancy, today about my research is such a privilege of mine because it gives me the opportunity to practice and, and make sure that I'm explaining in a way that other people can understand. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. So the 3MT competition or or three-minute thesis for people don't know has really opened you up to this possibility of being able to speak in public with confidence. Yes. Great. Yes. Really great. So now you're very busy. You're working in the lab. Maybe there's coursework or maybe you're done with coursework, but what do you do when you're not working in the lab? What do you do for fun? I love to bake and cook, which might not be surprising because those two things are very much a science, especially baking. I have my little scale. I follow the metric system and I weigh everything out. And <laughs> I'm such a nerd. I'm sorry. I, I love to bake and cook, but I don't like to eat what I bake and cook. So I, <laughs> which is great for my friends because that means they get to enjoy whatever I bake and cook. Uh, and I, it's turned out to be a really great strategy of socializing with people because, hey, our social lives revolve around food. So, and you know, undergraduates and graduate students, if you tell them there's free food, they will love you. So I just bake and cook and I share those with people around me. When you say bake and cook, what's your favorite thing to bake? Oh, I love, I love trying the interesting intricate things or very detailed things like meringues, things that you have to get scientifically accurate with temperature and mass. And yeah, <laughs> I love those. Wow. And so if you're inviting your friends over, what kind of a meal would you cook for them? 
to entice them. Probably I usually go for at least a two course meal, maybe not an appetizer, but if I'm going to make an entree, there's going to have to be dessert with it. I, and my friends know this, but I get really meticulous about plating and making sure that things are eaten at the right temperature. So sometimes it gets a little bothersome, but typically it's an enjoyable experience. Now, have you been able to get out in, in um, the mountains here? on the trails and stuff like that? I have. Uh, I actually enjoy being out and about. I also like to just go to Cooper's Rock and just enjoy the view there. Things The weather's been so kind. Although I do feel cheated by Mother Nature because I also love the winter. I love the cold. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to tell our podcast audience before we sign off for today? I just want to say, if you're considering graduate school, really lean into it. Don't be intimidated by any horror stories that you hear. Every experience is different and what you put in it, you'll get out of it. So if you try really hard to find a good mentor, to find a great environment, like the one I did at WVU, it's going to be rewarding at the end of the day. Thanks, Janelle. It's been a great conversation. I really appreciate you taking time today. Of course. And thank you to GradLife 601's podcast audience. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Join in next time to GradLife 601 Research and Beyond when I'll be speaking with WVU alum, Dr. Suleiman Balogun, a senior advisor for mine safety and health administration serving at the U.S. Department of Labor. Until next time, I'm Dr. Nancy Coronia for GradLife 601 Research and Beyond.